Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Great Famine Part 15, A Doomed Land, Piracy Elections and the 1847 Harvest. This episode is a bit late. I had minor surgery last week, so that threw the schedule off kilter. Anyway, I'm beginning to get back on track, and this episode will take you through the summer of 1847 in an Ireland experiencing extreme emotions as day-to-day life swung from times of great hope to the depths of despair. In August 1847, Ireland went to the polls in the only ballot held during the Great Famine in a contest that was more like a blood sport than modern elections. Then, when that was over, the people faced into what was the ultimate trial, the harvest of that year. But, to set the scene, we need to look at how the situation in Ireland was actually improving through the summer of 1847, through a somewhat strange lens. That is the story of Mayo Pirates. Before we begin though, I just want to say that this series is only possible through the support of listeners like you who have become patrons. Today I want to thank two patrons in particular, that's Michael Gumbert and Christine Todd. I'm extremely grateful for your support. In August 1847, a grand jury was convened in Castlebar, County Mayo to hear the evidence in 137 cases. While the fate of scores of people hung in the balance, aspects of the proceedings must have had the feeling of being in a time warp. Of the 137 cases, over half were, unsurprisingly, of theft and sheep stealing. Given the two previous years of starvation, this was hardly surprising. People did what they had to to survive in famines. However, then there was what the judge called a new species of crime piracy or the plundering of ships on the high seas. Now the golden age of piracy had long passed but over the summer of 1847 there had been dozens of attacks on vessels off the coast of Mayo. 
But these so-called pirates were very different from what you might imagine. While eye patches and Jolly Rogers might come to mind, the accused, standing in Castlebar Courthouse, were just desperate people who had endured terrible hardships in the past 12 months. Many were unquestionably guilty, but ultimately they were just like those who had stolen sheep. They had done what they had to in order to survive. To understand their story and how it related to what was, surprising to say, an improvement in the famine conditions in that summer of 1847, we need a bit of context. There was no question that life in Mayo through the previous months of 1847 had been difficult. In May 1847, the Dublin Quaker, Richard Davis Webb, had travelled through the county and had witnessed what life was like. By the middle of the month, Webb had reached the more remote north coast of Eris along the shores of Broadhaven Bay, which we visited in episode 3 of the series. And over the course of just two days, Webb had encountered three corpses along the roadside, that of a girl, a man and an old woman. In the village of Polythomus, a girl had collapsed from hunger in front of him. The famine had certainly taken a terrible toll on Eris. Another Quaker, the Englishman James Hack who visited the region in September and October of that year, stated that while the population of Erse had stood at 28,000 before the famine, by autumn 1847 it had fallen by over 25%, with 2,000 people emigrating and 6,000 having died during the two previous years from starvation and disease. It was hardly a surprise then that the coastal communities of Arras had resorted to what the press and authorities labelled as piracy. Richard Davis Webb would write of his experiences. During my stay of about 10 days in the barony of Arras, although it was not uncommon to hear of sheep, cows and even horses being stolen, killed and eaten by the famished people, I heard of no instance of highway robbery or personal violence upon land. On the sea, the case was different. For shortly before my visit, as well as whilst I was there, many vessels laden with provisions were plundered by the people along the seaside who surrounded the vessels on pretense of selling them fish and overpowered the crews by dint of numbers. Indeed, while Webb was at the well-known village of Rossport, a major raid on a vessel took place. 34 men had boarded 11 curracks, which are small boats native to the west of Ireland, and sallied out into Broadhaven Bay. They attacked a grain ship and made off with a few dozen sacks of corn. However, as they made their way back to the shore, they were intercepted by the Coast Guard, arrested and taken to the town of Belmullet. Similar raids continued through July and August. Among the more notable incidents was an attack on the ship Emily Maria off the Inishkay Islands, resulting in four people being shot dead and several wounded. A few weeks later, the problem had become so serious that the Navy announced that three ships would patrol the Mayo coast. However, the presence of these Navy vessels along Mayo's coastline did little to deter the attacks. On August the 15th, the Royal Victoria from Belfast was attacked while passing Eagle Island just off the Mullet Peninsula. Numerous small craft had approached the ship and it was boarded by 30 men. A battle broke out on board and a Mayo native, Peter Lavelle, was killed, his brother wounded and three more captured. Just a week later, on Monday, August the 23rd, 1847, another attack on a ship off Acklehead resulted in one death, several injuries and five arrests. 
In these four attacks alone, six people have been killed and around 40 arrested. While famine was undoubtedly the cause of this piracy, the increase in these attacks on vessels off the coast of Eris was actually evidence that the famine situation was improving somewhat through that summer of 1847. Now, as we saw in the last show, the British government had shifted their policy early in the spring of that year away from public work schemes towards the opening of soup kitchens. This dovetailed with the arrival of large shipments of grain from the USA, which I will look at later. It was precisely this movement of grain around the coast, much of which was being sent to soup kitchens, which presented opportunities to the so-called Pirates of Eris. That said, the fact that people were still willing to risk life and limb to rob food in Mayo highlighted that the improvement which resulted from the opening of soup kitchens, while crucial, was limited in some parts of Ireland. This was reinforced by the account of Richard Davis Webb, who while travelling along the west coast of Mayo, visited a soup kitchen at Ballycroy and described the scene. Yesterday I visited a soup kitchen superintended by the chief boatman of the water guards at Tullahan. He attends to it without fee or reward. He told me that it occupies him daily from four o'clock in the morning. The stuff he is supplied with is miserably poor, although he goes beyond his orders in the quantities he puts into his boiler. One does not know which way to turn or what to think at the sight of such a vast amount of intense wretchedness, and the people really seem to be, as they think they are, doomed to extermination. One man said of the poor people, If they get any strong dose at all, they die off at once. I asked what he meant by a strong dose, and he replied, If they get a full meal, it kills them immediately. Another said, Anybody's house you come to, the talk is all of misery and starvation. There's no fun at all among them now. This is literally true. Their natural vivacity and lightheartedness has been starved out of them. Soup kitchens like this sound shocking and are so by any objective standard. So what I'm about to say may sound controversial, but this overall strategy of opening soup kitchens was a step in the right direction. By June 1847, over 3 million people across Ireland were being fed by these kitchens and famine deaths were falling dramatically across much of the island. While Webb's account of Ballycroy was not exactly a shining light, we can look to the area around Skibbereen in West Cork as a more clear-cut success story. Skibbereen, as we've seen in previous episodes, had become synonymous with death during the previous winter, but by the summer of 1847, famine fatalities had stopped completely in the area. Perhaps the most troubling aspect of the soup kitchens was not the fact that they were up and running, but rather that they were never designed to be anything more than a temporary solution and were scheduled to close in September 1847. Then, in accordance to British policy, the Irish poor would need to fend for themselves or, failing that, they would have to go to the workhouse and avail of what relief was available there. To do this, however, they would have to give up their farms after the British Parliament had passed legislation stating anyone who owned more than one quarter of an acre was not entitled to famine relief. If piracy had been a problem when relief strategies were in operation, surely then the riots and violence that had marked the winter of 1846 would inevitably return. 
Unnerving as this uncertain future was, there were two major events due to take place in the coming months before the soup kitchens would close in September. Events which could potentially save Ireland. The first of these was a general election across the United Kingdom due to take place in August. The second event looming on the horizon was the harvest of 1847, which would start in the aftermath of that election. If the harvest was bad and the potato crop failed for a third successive year, hundreds of thousands would need workhouse relief. Alternatively, if the crops were bountiful, the poor would have enough food to eat. But before we look at that, I want to take a breather. Now if you follow the show on Facebook or Patreon, you will know that I'm planning a short break from the famine series in the run-up to Christmas. Instead, I'm going to make a short mini-series. There are a few reasons for this, not least among them I feel I need a break from the story of the famine, which can be intense to say the least. Coming back to it in the new year with a fresh perspective will, I think, help keep up the standard of the show. The mini-series that I'm going to be making is called Outsiders. This will be about six to eight shows long on individuals that were outsiders in Irish history. The series is currently in the planning stages, but some of the people I am thinking of focusing on are Albert Pierpoint, one of Ireland's last hangmen, Kit Kavna, a woman who dressed as a man and fought in the British Army, and Bridie Halpin, a forgotten Irish revolutionary. I am currently still looking for more subjects, so if you have any ideas, let me know. The basis for an individual's inclusion in the series is that they have to have some connection to Ireland and are somewhat forgotten or regarded as something of an outsider for one reason or another. So if you have any ideas, mail me at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. That's history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. The first of the two major events taking place in the summer of 1847 was the general election, the only one held during the Great Famine. It's worth trying to place yourself in the position of someone living in Ireland as this election loomed in that summer. The population had experienced terrible horrors over the past years. Many had lost family and friends, but also experienced the horrors famine had brought upon the population. If ever there was a society reading from post-traumatic stress, Ireland in the summer of 1847 certainly was it. When the election was called, many must have been nervous, to say the least. Not only had a majority of people suffered, but tensions surrounding the famine had already spilled over into frequent riots and political violence. Providing a platform for people to air their grievances seemed likely to lead to even more violence. To make matters worse, 19th century elections were at the best of times raucous affairs. They were short, with campaigns lasting no more than a few weeks at most, but violence was by no means uncommon. For example, the 1837 general election in the Sligo constituency had been marred by pretty extreme violence. In the days and weeks leading up to the poll, numerous people had been assaulted and several houses smashed up. When voting actually took place on August 14, 1837, a major riot broke out in the streets of Sligo as rival factions gathered in the town. The British Army, brought out to maintain order, only served to make things worse when they launched a mounted charge on the assembled crowds. Several people were seriously injured after being struck with sabres. 
With precedents like this, when the election was called for the late summer of 1847, the stage was set for what seemed like what would be an inevitably fraught, bitter and violent contest. When the campaigns began in late July and early August 1847, they did not fail to live up to expectations. That troubled constituency of Sligo certainly provided a lively contest. On the day of the hustings, the candidates arrived armed with weapons, fearing violence. Sure enough, once they took the stage, a major riot broke out, with several drawing their pistols to fend off attackers. One prospective candidate was hit with a chair and thrown from the stage. Meanwhile, in the neighbouring constituency of Roscommon, a man called John Connerton was killed when a riot broke out during the election there. In Dublin, events were slightly more sedate, but not without controversy all the same. In what was a notoriously corrupt constituency, there was a considerable amount of voter fraud with numerous dead people casting ballots. While the election was unquestionably fraught, strange as it sounds, it wasn't the issue of the famine that was fueling this tension. The violence in Sligo had actually arisen due to a conflict between two factions of the same party. Indeed, bizarrely, the Great Famine or Famine Relief policies did not really feature heavily in the election at all. A study by Brian Walker has revealed that the issues of religious liberty and the major political issue in Ireland over the previous 15 years, the repeal of the Act of Union, actually dominated instead. It sounds unimaginable that something like the famine would not dominate this election, but when we look at the situation on the ground, it makes a certain degree of sense. In 1847, when Ireland went to the polls, democracy was still in its infancy, All women, and the vast majority of men, did not yet have the right to vote. This privilege was largely restricted to male property owners and members of trades guilds. Many of the people who faced starvation, such as those willing to risk everything by attacking ships off the coast of Mayo, could not vote, so candidates did not try and appeal to them directly. However, even had these people been able to vote, The reality of the matter was that no political party of the day had anything particularly radical to say in terms of solutions to the Great Famine. A potential voter in 1847 had three options, all of which were pretty disappointing, to be frank. The track record of the Liberal Party, who had been in government over the previous year and had clearly failed, spoke for itself, but the alternative options were not much better. The other possible party of government was the extremely divided Conservative Party. Their track record in terms of famine relief was better. Under the Prime Minister Robert Peel, they had alleviated the famine in early 1846, but since then the party had more or less imploded. Peel himself had fallen from power in the summer of 1846 and the party had split. One faction, led by Lord Bentinck in the House of Commons, were certainly making the right noises about intervening to alleviate the famine, but the other wing of the party, led by Robert Peel, had actually gone on to support the Liberal government and their disastrous strategy. So even if the Conservatives could form a government, no one really knew what that would mean for Ireland. The final option open to voters at the election of 1847 were candidates who stood for a repeal of the Act of Union. They wanted Ireland to remain in the British Empire but to be ruled by a parliament in Dublin. Many at the time, and particularly since then, have assumed that these people were undoubtedly the best option for an Irish voter who was concerned about the famine. But I'm pretty dubious about this. 
The repeal movement were, by and large, supporters of the Liberal Party and while they had criticised the lack of famine relief, they had never become an out-and-out opposition party. Indeed, their voting record was hardly inspiring. Their current leader in Parliament, John O'Connell, had encouraged his voters to support the legislation that precluded anyone who owned more than a quarter acre of land from getting famine relief. Therefore, although it's strange to say, the election of 1847 passed off without any major debate around the famine and no candidate really had very much to say about it. However, while politicians failed to address the issue, this didn't mean the election results wouldn't have an impact. In fact, despite everything I've said, the 1847 election would prove to be one of the most decisive of the 19th century. When the votes were tallied and the new representatives took their place in the House of Commons, the outcome was pretty disastrous from an Irish perspective. Initially it seemed the victors in Irish constituencies were the candidates who stood on the repeal platform and they came back with an extra 15 seats. However, there was no doubt that the overall picture was gloomy in the extreme when results across the United Kingdom were factored in. While no party presented a clear way forward or seemed particularly interested in famine relief, the British government that was returned had somehow become even more unsympathetic to the plight of the starving poor in Ireland. The Liberal Party increased their overall vote by 21 seats, while the Conservatives lost 42. The Liberals remained in power, but the internal dynamic in the party had changed. Those who advocated a strict non-intervention policy became more powerful and the Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, who represented a moderate wing believing in limited famine relief, was increasingly isolated. This did not bode well for Ireland, as the Liberal Party had already held a pretty extreme position to begin with. As the election results were tallied that summer, the entire political landscape seemed to be swinging against the Irish poor. The Lord Lieutenant in Ireland, that's the British government's representative on the ground, you might say, Lord Bespera, a man who had grown increasingly critical of the government's response or lack of response to the famine, had died that summer. He was replaced by Lord Clarendon, who was a very different man altogether. He was not Ireland's greatest fan and viewed his appointment to being thrown into what he called an Irish bog. He lacked Bespera's empathy and showed no understanding of the plight of the poor. To compound this further, the Irish election results were received badly in England. Many across the water believed the British government had already spent too much money on Ireland and were dismayed that Irish voters would favour candidates who supported a repeal of the Act of Union. The British press jumped on this as evidence that the Irish people were ungrateful for the relief sent to date. This marked a major shift in attitudes among the general population and politicians alike in England. While the press had frequently carried stories sympathetic to Ireland up to 1847, they now gave way for more hostile coverage. From this point onwards, sympathy for Irish famine victims would be in diminishing supply in England. The summer of 1847, politically speaking at least, could hardly have taken a worse trajectory. This left Irish hopes pinned on the upcoming harvest. Through the summer, the island had become fixated to an almost hysterical level on the threat posed by the return of a potato blight that year. The answer to this question would be revealed in the weeks following the election, but before we look at that, I want to take another breather. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Extreme times have a tendency of bringing normally obscure people to the fore. In the summer of 1847, it was Ireland's botanists and horticulturalists who found themselves in the limelight. In normal times, their musings on plants and crops rarely made the newspapers or provoked interest in the wider populace. But in 1847, increasing numbers were interested in what they had to say regarding predictions, debates and arguments over the forthcoming harvest. After the failures of 1845 and 1846, few wanted to contemplate what lay in store if the potato crop in particular failed for a third time in 1847. But from June onwards, a major argument broke out among experts about what lay ahead. On June 3rd, the Royal Agricultural Improvement Society convened in Dublin and specimens of diseased potatoes were produced Reports were even bandied about that 80% of the crop in Carlow had been destroyed and it was spreading rapidly through the Midlands. As word filtered out and the press predicted disaster, confusion reigned supreme because no sooner had these reports appeared than they were contradicted. On June 5th, some members of the Royal Agricultural Improvement Society stated the appearance of blight did not represent any major threat. The summer continued in this fashion with claims predicting a healthy crop countered by those predicting a complete disaster in a dispute that became increasingly bitter. Some claimed those predicting disaster were just acting in the pay of corn speculators trying to boost the demand for their grain. For the vast majority who would suffer, this situation was perplexing and terrifying. Their future depended on the potato crop but from reading the press, it was simply impossible to garner any sense of what was actually happening. Ultimately, it was the words of the Dublin Evening Post that encapsulated the powerlessness people faced when they said, Time alone can decide the point. When the election came and went in August, the crops were, by and large, still healthy. Then finally, the main harvest arrived in September and while reports continued to claim the potato was diseased and blight was rampaging through the countryside, the potato crop was lifted and was not only free from blight, but was also exceptional in terms of volume. The return of potatoes per acre was really astounding. It was actually one of the highest on record, with an average farm producing 7 tonnes of potatoes from each acre of ground sown. The initial collective sigh of relief must have been palpable across the island. 
From a distance, this seemed to arrive just in the nick of time. As the bountiful crop was harvested, the soup kitchens, which had kept the population going through the summer of 1847, were just starting to close. And no matter how harsh the new government would be, the people now at least had potatoes. The mood in some quarters was one of jubilance. But tragically, this was premature. The great harvest was somewhat illusory. The famine was certainly changing in nature, but it was far from over. That the harvest of 1847 would be ultimately very poor was something which had been entirely predictable from early on in the year, but it seems that hope and the unwillingness to contemplate the disaster staring Ireland in the face made people blind to this situation. Since the failure of the 1846 harvest, agriculture in Ireland had more or less collapsed. Farm labourers, who had traditionally worked in return for land to grow their potatoes, had desperately needed cash to buy food after the blight had destroyed their crop in 1846. When farmers refused to pay these labourers in cash, they had been left with no alternative but to turn to the public work schemes for employment and money. This meant far fewer people were working the land during the sowing season and far fewer crops of any kind were planted. The situation regarding the all-important potato had been compounded by the lack of seed available. Traditionally, around one-sixth to one-quarter of the potato crop had been held back and used as seed the following year. However, in 1846, the crop had been so devastated, farmers had been forced to eat the stocks normally reserved as seed. In a normal year, 2 to 2.5 million acres of land in Ireland was devoted to the potato. However, in advance of the 1847 harvest, for the reasons I have just mentioned above, only half a million acres of potatoes was planted. This meant that no matter what happened, no matter how good that harvest in 1847 was, there was always going to be a huge shortfall in food in that year. The impact of this was truly staggering. While the harvest of 1847 may well have been one of the best in terms of return per acre, the overall yield was tiny, bringing in just 2 million tonnes of potatoes that year. When the final tallies were made, the overall harvest was even lower than it had been in 1846 when blight had destroyed the crop. The millions normally dependent on the potato were now going to face a third consecutive winter without their main source of food. By September, the reality of the situation began to dawn on people and their initial optimism turned to panic as the soup kitchens, which had been feeding the people through the summer, now began to close and food was scarce. Charles Helly, a one-time Conservative, shocked at the situation facing Ireland, addressed the meeting in Kilkenny in September 1847 and spelled out the appalling vista. The question is how will Irish people survive? The potato has not been sown to anything approaching the extent of its cultivation in former years. The potato in Ireland is no longer the food of the poor man, but a luxury for the rich. Where are the means of keeping our people alive until the next harvest? The potato as an article of food for the people is gone and the cheapest food which they can get they must purchase. And where are the people to get the money to purchase food? Will anyone answer me? Will anyone answer the fearful question? How are the people to live through the coming winter without food or money to purchase food? However, 
While the harvest was abysmal, the situation unfolding in Ireland was very different to what had led to the horrors of the winter of 1846-47. Famines in the modern era have rarely, if ever, been caused by a lack of food, but rather the root cause is generally people's ability or other inability to buy the food that is available. In 1846 in particular, there had been huge shortages of food due to massive exports which continued to flow from Irish ports that year, leading to exorbitant prices. However, in 1847, this situation had changed. While a commitment to free trade had played a detrimental role in how the British government had reacted over the previous two years, some measures from this stable of thought did have a positive impact in 1847. The removal of some import taxes allowed international merchants to ship grain into Ireland during the spring and summer of 1847. These people had previously been frozen out of the market by exorbitant taxes. Exactly how much grain was imported is a matter of debate because the British government actually doctored their own figures. But there's no doubt hundreds of thousands of tonnes of corn was shipped into Irish ports, something that was reflected in a dramatic fall in the price of grain. By August, corn had fallen to almost a third of what it had been the previous February. Nevertheless, it is important to recognise that exports of other food, particularly livestock, did continue. Through 1847 alone, over a quarter of a million animals were exported to British ports. But nevertheless, as Ireland faced starvation for a third year in a row, there was large quantities of relatively cheap food in the country. You might say that this was surely good news. Well, it is, but the only problem was is that those facing starvation had no employment and therefore no money to buy this food. Even at the very low prices, many had absolutely nothing to pay for food, no matter how cheap it was. Had huge public work schemes, which had not worked the previous year, been started at this point, they would have had an effect because food was now affordable when it hadn't been the previous winter. However, the new hardline Liberal government were refusing to release the large amounts of money which would have been needed for these public works schemes. They had already ditched plans for works programmes when an economic recession hit England and the money that had been allocated for Ireland was demanded elsewhere. The only source of government money on offer as the winter of 1847 approached was a loan scheme to landlords to carry out improvement works on their estates which would provide employment. However, many landlords were already on the verge of bankruptcy themselves and they were in no position to utilise this scheme effectively. Millions now faced into a third winter of starvation with no prospect of earning money and absolutely nothing left to sell or pawn in exchange for money to buy food. Pigs, as the historian Christine Keneally has stated, had become almost extinct on small farms. By 1847, the numbers of swine being exported had fallen to 622,000, a drop from 1.4 million six years earlier. People had even sold the clothes off their backs. Over the course of the previous two years, clothes valued at £8,500 had been pawned in the town of Kilkeel in County Down in Ulster. Given that Kilkeel and the surrounding areas have a population of about 16,000 people, this is a phenomenal amount of money. Indeed, across Ulster, which many have incorrectly claimed was not affected by the Great Famine, 
but it did have more industrial jobs, the prospect of what lay ahead for the coming winter was still disturbing. This report from Ballymena, a town located to the north of Belfast in County Antrim, illustrated the plight of the people there. Provisions are, it is true, cheaper, but is still so scarce and works so difficult to obtain that many of the labourers will not be able to purchase the necessaries of life. Many of them could turn their hand to the loom if it was possible to make anything out of it. Alas, the weaving trade seems to be drawing near a close. To one degree or another, people in communities across Ireland faced similar uncertainty that autumn, albeit shaped by local circumstances. In the coming episodes, while I will look at what unfolded in that winter of 1847-48, to the series will now take a slightly different tack. There are specific aspects of the famine which I have yet to cover, so as we move through this winter, I will be looking at these to ensure they don't get left out. In this light, the next show on the Great Famine will be focused around workhouses. Until then, Sloan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.